Welcome to At The Cap Table podcast, uh, the exciting new series dedicated to hearing from the leading investors who are taking the PC industry by storm in Europe. Coming to you from London, I am Sarah Finnegan. Our next guest is the brilliant Susan Lin. Susan is a partner at Felix Capital, a venture capital firm for the creative classes operating at the intersection of technology and creativity. Felix focuses on things like digital lifestyle across various different verticals, investing in authentic consumer-facing brands and platforms, um, and also related enabling B2B technologies. Their mission really is to be a partner of choice for entrepreneurs with big ideas and helping them build category-defining companies that will move the world forward. They have an exciting list of portfolio companies, including Farfetch, Deliveroo, Peloton, Oakley, Goop. The list goes on. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Tactic is the leading forecasting and scenario planning software for venture capital funds. Tactic combines portfolio construction, portfolio management, forecasting, and reporting into a unified platform. Investors are empowered with data-driven insights on fund strategy, reserve allocation, exit planning, and fund performance. Tactic was built using quantitative techniques researched from hundreds of data-driven fund managers and is trusted by over 250 funds globally today. Tactic is a proud sponsor of the first season of the At The Cap Table podcast series. If you'd like to learn more, please check out tactic.io. T-A-C-T-Y-C dot I-O. Awesome. Susan, a very warm welcome and thank you so much for joining us on At The Cap Table podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Brilliant. So I've been following Felix um, over the last few years and your name consistently comes up as a prominent figure in the industry who is deeply engaged in consumer investing. So we're really, really delighted to have you um, on the podcast today. I think let's just jump straight in. Um, You've had a really, really interesting and varied career so far. Um, It includes consulting, operating roles, growth investing, And then most recently, uh, you've made the move and transition into venture. Um, So we'd love to learn a little bit more about your background and the journey that led you to venture. Wonderful. Um, Well, where should I start? Is it okay if I start at the beginning? (laughs) It's a little bit. It'll be a slightly longer tale, but uh, but um, just as a bit of context. So I um, I grew up uh, moving around a lot. So originally Australian Chinese, but uh, accent is is very confused at this point. Um, and part of that was because my parents were were actually founders. Um, they they sort of end up becoming serial entrepreneurs, and they they originally um, moved to Australia for grad school, which a lot of people did um, in the eighties um, to sort of leave communist China. And they actually then moved back to Asia to Hong Kong and China in the nineties when they saw an opportunity to start a, a Start a first wave internet company in the original dot com boom. It's funny how I mean I think you know you, you sort of come full circle in your life because I think for a long time I was almost like I try to move away from what they were doing and I'll get onto that so, shortly. But uh, but the end I've, I've sort of come full circle um, and and they started to start up together. Um, I mean it had it sort of had all the hallmarks of like highs and lows. They you know it, they raised venture money. They they you know never had a, a babysitter, so they always brought me along to meetings. I'd sit in the back of, of these meetings, the pitches that they would do. Um, they had all their co-founders work out of a, a very small living room in, in Hong Kong because the apartments there are tiny. Um, and then you know things originally went really well, and then in two thousand and two thousand one, it sort of all came crashing down. So I've I've uh, it, it's it's been an interesting journey, and I, I you know. I, I, I really admired their resilience through that. Um, it's given me a lot of empathy to, to all founders and their families. Uh, but also it was a really eye-opening 
we were actually living in Shenzhen for quite a while. And that was sort of in the late 90s was when, when there was the first uh, wave of, of Chinese internet companies. So so Tencent actually was, which was in the same office, small office park that my dad's startup was in. And you just saw sort of like in, in you know, China Tech in particular, this huge leapfrogging um, and just huge acceleration, which which really impacted people's lives in, in all sorts of different ways. And, uh, and I think just made me a, a really interested and excited about tech from there on. Ended up going to the U.S. for for college. Um, this is twenty years ago now, and uh, and I originally, I you know, my, my dad always joked and asked if I wanted to be a founder, and I I was told him I I wouldn't want to go through the entrepreneur journey after seeing what what they did, um, and so I, I chose like a very stable route, going into management consulting um, at Bain in San Francisco in two thousand eight, and there yeah, I started my career there. I started in, in 2008, um, did a lot of interesting tech work out there, um, also consumer work, and then actually left in, in 2011, which I, I don't tell a lot of people, but I, I tried to start my own startup um, because when you're in your early 20s and in, in, uh, in SF, everyone thinks that they can be Mark Zuckerberg, uh, which you, you quickly learned you cannot. Well, I, I learned I couldn't. Um, so it was, it was a very humbling experience. I, I tried to start a, start a social commerce app, actually. And then joined, ended up um, as that wound down, joined another friend at a at an early stage um, B two B SaaS company called AppDirect. So so stayed in the Bay Area until late 2015, and, and ended up coming to to moving to London because my husband uh, is European um, and and had issues with his U.S. visa, and uh, and very um, so coincidentally sort of got recruited um, seven eight years ago by a colleague to to be on the investing side, which was something I was always curious about, but I I sort of. Plan A was was that I would be hopefully a successful operator or founder and and uh, you know go back to being an angel investor in my fifties. Um, so I, d- I didn't do the sort of classic um, investment um, sort of recruiting, but then you know got this opportunity, uh, joined a great fund called HG Capital, which focuses on on B two B software investing here in in the UK, um, which is since sort of ballooned in, in terms of size and AUM, um, done very well for itself, and uh, and found that I really really enjoyed being on the investing side. As a had the experience of being both a very early stage startup founder and uh, and an early employee, I was always sort of curious to and excited to get back into the earlier part of the ecosystem where I could you know partner with founders in, in that sort of uh, one to ten journey, shall we say? And uh, and so in 2018, I um, started you know looking at early stage funds to join. I wanted to join also a place where I felt you know was a bit of a startup in itself, and was lucky to to meet um, Antoine and Frederick. They had started Felix in 2015, um, and they were just uh, about to launch Fund Two. So um, I joined them, and it's been a it's been a great journey since. I guess what a what a perfect segue into um, the next topic. I think like turning to Felix Capital. I guess you are partner at this fund, and I always think super interesting kind of thesis. You operate at the intersection of of, of technology and creativity, but it's also kind of positioning yourself as. I guess itself to kind of the creative class. So you've bought an enormous amount of incredibly exciting companies, including Farfetch, Deliveroo, Peloton, the list goes on. But we'd love to um, hear a little bit more from you actually on, on about Felix Capital and then also its origins. Felix was started in 2014, 2015 by my, my two partners, um, Frederick and Antoine. Um, we launched Fund One in 2015. That was uh, a sort of smallish, early stage focused fund. Uh, we've since, you know, we've been lucky to raise, you know, Fund Two, Fund Three, and now Fund Four. Investing out of Fund Four, which is a 600 million dollar fund in total, which we actually split between 300 on the early stage side and 300 on the growth side. Um, so have the flexibility to be multi stages. 
when Fred and Antoine started uh, Felix, it was really sort of with a few things that they wanted to do differently. Um, the first is it, that I would sort of just say, which I think is still, it's very common in the U.S. It's probably still fairly rare in in uh, in Europe or a little bit rare in, in Europe, which is like all four of us in the partnership. So Frederick Antoine, myself, and Julian have had founder operator experiences, and in Julian's case, a very long time. Um, but but actually, all the three of the the three of us have all been founders at some point. Um, Frederick has actually started a company in 1998, was VC funded. Again, sort of similar story. My my parents started up had a had a great run and then crashed in, in 2001. Um, but which I don't think he talks about very often either. Um, but um, I think, you know, we really wanted to bring that more sort of um, founder operator led experience where we were, you know, we knew how to partner with founders. Um, we have a, a boutique style. So the team is quite small. We're uh, I think we're about 12 or so in, in total, seven on the investment team uh, at the moment. And, you know, really wanted to keep that that boutique style where we we are, you know, all, all of us sort of individually, but also collaboratively working with with founders. We have a very concentrated portfolio. So each fund also only invests in in 15, you know, to 18 companies. So um, rather than having a very broad um, portfolio where, you know, we we are not as close to each one of them, we, we do try to, to stay on top of uh, each of our relationships. Um, and the other thing, as you mentioned, is, is the thematic approach. So I think, you know, particularly in given Europe's background is, you know, a lot of the early successes, whether you know, it's the SAPs of the world were very B2B software driven. I think a lot of the funds started with, with that sort of mandate. And I think both Frederick and Antoine and myself as well, you know, we share a lot of curiosity and consumer side. If we look at, you know, where the, where the largest portion of GDP spend is, right, it is on consumer lives. And I think we're all very excited about the the way we all witness and observe the way that, that tech can impact and improve people's lives. And I think we're all excited about about that. So as you said, you know, we, we, we operate at that intersection. So about 60% of our portfolio, you know, ends up being consumer platforms, brands, marketplaces, um, impacting different parts of, you know, the people's lives from, from, you know, fashion to food to um, transport, travel, financial services, even health and wellness. And then we have another sort of 40% of the portfolio on the B2B SaaS side, which is really focused around either um, commerce enablement, which, you know, is very synergistic with the with the consumer portfolio, or it's around sort of consumerized workplace tools. So really this next generation of, of workplace tools that are making sort of the employees' lives better. Um, and you mentioned a very interesting point around, I guess, um, Felix's approach as a much more boutique style versus, say, other larger funds and asset managers. How does that translate to working with in your interactions with founders? What does that actually mean on the ground? I mean, it's interesting because we, we we're such a small team and we don't really have a platform operations team. I mean, it's something we've been discussing for a long time. But it means that, you know, all of us are very, you know, are, are sort of full stack in a way, right? We, we do everything from the initial sourcing, the building relationship to, um, you know, investing to working with founders after we've invested. And, you know, in, I would say at least half of the portfolio, if not more, we, we tend to take lead positions. We're, we're not dogmatic, but we do end up um, leading quite often. And in those cases, you know, we want to be um, supportive and, and very present um, board board members. Um, helping founders with everything from, you know, your classic sort of recruiting and, and structuring to things like introductions and uh, partnerships, particularly within our consumer portfolio. We, we've helped a lot with thinking through international expansion, what are the right retail partners, you know, what does best in class marketing look like, all of those sorts of topics. Um, and I think, you know, we it's been interesting the last couple of years with the large, you know, ups and downs that the industry has seen, because I think, you know, you really see some varied VC um 
you you see how different VCs approach things very differently, and I think, um, and founders as well. And I think you know we we certainly see with some some of our you know even our portfolio companies what what might have a challenging chapter that some VCs are sort of take a very sort of numbers driven approach. And you know if a company if they think a comp- portfolio company isn't doing well, they're sort of just like we're going to wash our hands. You know we might stop picking up the calls. We might stop engaging. Um, which, you know, if you have a very large portfolio and, and you know, you, you, you're, you're, uh, you don't have enough time, sort of understand the rationale of that. But, but obviously, for each company, um, it really, I mean, for us, because we have a concentrated portfolio, each company matters. And, and for the founders, they only have one portfolio company. So it really, really matters. And, and so we just think, you know, we want to bring that human touch and that empathy. Um, not to say that, you know, we will always be, you know, we won't try to challenge respectfully if we think things are going the wrong way. But I think, you know, it's important to, to have that human, um, uh, that emotional awareness. I guess switching topics slightly uh, more into, I guess, the consumer investing space. Um, so Felix, like you mentioned, kind of investing in multiple verticals, like authentic consumer facing brands and platforms and, and also related B2B kind of technologies. But I guess if you think about it in the, the context of consumer spending in the UK, it is a significant one, accounting for over 60% of UK GDP. Yet I feel like the last kind of 12, 18 months have been really challenging, right? I think if you look at kind of portfolio companies, they're struggling to kind of raise um, raise money compared to say B2B SaaS companies. So would you have to hear your thoughts on, you know, what are some of the key opportunities you are seeing in consumer investing? Um, and then again, kind of related question, anything, any specific examples um, that you can kind of draw on? Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting because I think here, I mean, there's there's there was actually a great piece by, I don't know if you know uh, Eileen Lee from Cowboy um, Ventures. She had po- po- put this sort of um, uh, this large piece on, research piece on 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 TechCrunch, which was sort of reflecting back sort of ten years of, of unicorn creation and VC um, investing. And if you look at I forget if it was it was ten or fifteen years ago. You know, the eighty percent of VC money was actually going into consumer, um, in, into consumer, and that sort of you know led to the first wave uh, or second wave of you know these huge consumer success stories of, of Amazon, of of, uh, of Facebook, etc. But now it's you know gone exactly the other way. So it's I think it's you know eighty or eighty five percent is in B two B SaaS and very few is in consumer. We're still happy to be contrarian in, in this space. I think, you know, as you said, you know, a large part of GDP and, and spend are, are in consumer. I think, you know, if you look at the most valuable companies in the world today, whether it's Apple, Tesla, Nike, Disney, Google, you know, Amazon, LVMH, the list goes on. I mean, they they are all consumer facing companies where, you know, even with if if Apple and Tesla obviously have tech at the heart of part of what they do, but it's, you know, that Apple product can charge that differentiated margin, that differentiated pricing because it's Apple, right? So there is a huge portion that that of, of value that that brand creates. And, you know, we, we think also if you look at consumer behavior, which is something that we're really obsessed by, people are living life very differently. And, and actually they're using sort of products and experiences and brands as a way to now find affiliation, to connect with others, to find community. Um, so we, I think we're we're very excited by a lot of the areas around that. We still we think large parts of consumer spending are still very resilient. Obviously, each market, you know, the UK has had it's been particularly hit hard with sort of cost of living. But it, you know, if you look across most of 
um, Western Europe and, and the U.S. It's, it's still pretty resilient in a lot of Cree categories, you know, especially not right now around experiences, everything from travel, hospitality, et cetera, um, things in, you know, in, in personal care and beauty um, is still, still very resilient, um, you know, you things in, in pet care and things around wellness and pro- proactive and preventive health. I think people are taking much more um, care of that. And, and, and in food and beverages, people are also um, happy to spend for quality. So I think there, there are lots of pockets where we think they're, you know, the consumer spending is resilient and where really new brands um, and new, um, new products um, and great products can sort of outgrow um, the market as well. And I think that's the other thing is, you know, you do see this generational change in brand loyalty. So, you know, as we went gone from, you know, um, from, from the baby boomer gen- generation to Gen X to millennials to Gen Z, you know, each generation has, has different behaviors and wants to find, you know, uh, their, their sort of generation of brands that they, they really aspire to. And that also creates a lot of exciting opportunity. Absolutely. And are there any specific areas of consumer that you're particularly excited about? Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the ones that I mentioned before, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, there, there was a lot of VC funding sort of five plus years ago and, and, you know, well, Felix was included in there, which sort of just was, was, was pouring money into, into the sort of D2C startups, which some, some have scaled pretty well and, and others have, you know, frankly struggled quite a lot. And I think, you know, people saw that and thought, well, actually that's, that's not, you know, great. Like let's move away from investing in, in D2C brands. And I think what we learned is, you know, it, it's, it, it is a, a lot of it comes down to both the brand you're creating, the product you're, you're creating, and also, you know, how well you're executing. Um, and of course, you know, the team that underpins that. But you can create all fantastic um, new new companies and brands, but it can't be just rely on a new channel, right? So D2C is not really a, a, an innovative business model anymore. You have to be omni-channel. You have to be, um, you have to, you know, the, the bar is higher on, on the acquisition side. You know, acquisition costs have gotten so expensive over the last couple of years, especially on, on on Meta, and so you really you know need to have differentiated distribution, whether that's through you know um, a founder that might have you know created a, a, a really strong built up a very strong organic community over time and become sort of known as the voice in you know, fashion and skincare, whatever it is. Or you know it's leveraging di- different different types of, of, of distribution um, to to reach end consumer, but and and then you know really getting that that loyalty and that customer love. But I think if you, if you are able to crack that, you know th- then it's definitely a business that that you know we'd we'd love to we'd love to meet and, and founders that you know we'd love to to uh, build a relationship with. When you look back on your career, I think you've you've managed to invest and support. A number of really, really impressive founders from, I guess, many of the companies that we've we've just heard um, of. And I guess those that are really kind of ready to make their mark on human progress and, and really making life better and more fun for everyone. We'd love to get your thoughts on how you actually think about impact and backing companies that really bring positive change to the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, when we look back to the the manifesto of Felix, so we, we, uh, we, we sort of, a couple of years ago, we went through our own B Corp certification process. And we're, I think we're one of the few sort of VC funds at this scale that are, that are B Corp certified. And we really, you know, we looked back to the mission and, and we felt that, you know, it was everything still held true. The only thing that we became even more deliberate about is wanting to find founders that are creating, you know, big ideas and, 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 and big brands that are moving the world forward. We, we say we're moving the world forward. We're not an impact fund, um, so you know we are a, a classic VC fund, and obviously you know we we have a, a huge fi- a financial um, fiduciary duty to our LPs. Um, but we, I think we do when we are. Um, Investing in companies, we we definitely think a lot about their mission and, and the impact they're they're driving in 
their communities, with their customers, and with their teams. And so I think that the two ways we look at it is sort of, you know, one is, you know, we, we do sort of use the UN SDG framework. So, you know, we look at all the all the sort of 17 goals across that. And we see, you know, I believe when we last did an audit, about 48% of our portfolio companies were aligned with with one of those missions, you know, whether it's, it's uh, around, you know, sustainability. Um, so, you know, we have, for example, in our portfolio companies like um, DOT, um, which is, you know, urban micro um, uh, sustainability or uh, Oatly, which obviously, you know, is, is plant-based um, milk. But we also have things around in, in improving broader access to health and wellness. So, you know, Pepe, for example, which is really helping, you know, uh, women uh, with, with menopause, fertility and other areas. Uh, Unmind, which is a corporate mental wellness. Um, and, and also, you know, in, even sort of physical health and also um, financial uh, health and inclusion. So companies like, you know, Lassie, which is pet insurance, which is actually helping, you know, a lot of um, pet parents who, you know, sometimes get hit by unexpected vet costs. With, with that. So it, it's, it's you know, it's not like, a, I think there are funds that are very focused on one segment of that, which is, you know, oftentimes actually more sort of sustainably and, and, and carbon driven, which was really important. And we, we actually have in our portfolio as well, a company called Effie, which is helping with home energy efficiency uh, projects. So, you know, solar panels, heat pumps, um, insulation, all that. But we all, we also sort of want to make sure that we're, we're adding the other important um, pillars as well, which is, you know, around yeah, financial, physical um, inclusion and sort of uh, gender inclusion. Wanted to also, I guess, get your thoughts on on those that are raising in, in the current environment. I think if you look back at the last kind of 12, 18 months, high interest rates, sticky inflation, like political uncertainty, et cetera, et cetera. The fundraising environment for a lot of the portfolio companies has been challenging. Um, but I guess in seeing that, you know, we uh, with Anter is certainly seeing a lot of a really exciting kind of seeded Series A rounds being closed in in London. I guess that's kind of down to a number of kind of fundamental factors. But would love to get your perspective on on outlook on investing in consumer companies in the current market. And I guess a second related question is there there might be a number of uh, founders dialing into this. We, we hope so. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would great. Get your views on. You know, what are the what are, what is the advice? What are you looking for exactly? And I guess it would be great to kind of get uh, get you to impart any critical advice for founders that are actually on that journey. So I think overall we are, you know, we're broadly cautiously optimistic about 2024. I mean, I think, you know, when we when we look back and, and um, you know, I've t- talked, talked a lot with my colleagues who have a, I mean, Frederick has been investing over the last 20 years. So he has a even sort of um, a broader view of the of the market across cycles, across multiple cycles. But I think, you know, we, we, we do now, you know, I mean, 2021 and 2022, oh, first half of 2020, 2021, 20, or first half of 22 was such an abnormal period that I think, you know, there is, there were a lot of things when you look back, that didn't make sense then. Where I do think we you know we've returned to normalcy, which is long term much more healthy for for the overall ecosystem, for founders or for VCs. Um, I think you know those those crazy times uh, created a lot of you know strange incentives and strange behaviors, which I, I think you know weren't about really building great long term sustainable businesses. And I um, I think you know though it's been a really painful adjustment for many, um, I think it, it, we're in a healthier place now for the overall ecosystem. I think we're we're cautiously optimistic for for twenty four. Um, I think you know all the. I mean, it's anyone's guess, and there's obviously there could be a lot of black swan events with, especially geopolitics and the you know, U.S. elections and everything. But I think we are, uh, you know, everything we've seen around um, you know consumer sentiment. I mean, inflation has been you know broadly much more much more controlled now. I think rates will hopefully you know in H two this year start coming down. 
it sounds like the uh, public market's going to open up. And obviously that, you know, once there is some liquidity events, that will also be very helpful for for both LPs and then you know, that trickles out to GPs. Um, so, we, you know, we, we think, you know, uh, things things should stabilize and, and, and normalize. And, and hopefully, you know, we, we've already um, hit sort of the, the bottom in a, in a softish landing way. Having said that, you know, on the consumer side, um, so, you know, overall, quite, quite positive. We, we certainly see there's sort of um, the, the, the volume and pipeline seems to be picking up quite a lot, um, particularly at early stages. I think to your point, you know, Seed Series A feels, feels pretty active. I think growth is still pretty pretty slow. Um, and we haven't seen that many large growth rounds coming coming up, and I think a lot of you know the companies that did raise large rounds in in twenty one, you know, they extended their runway to quite a lot. So either they're you know they don't need any more cash in ever again, or or you know they they get to profitability, or or maybe they'll come back to market um, later this year. But I think yeah, on, on consumer companies that that are raising, you know, I think we are. Um, um, actually, I'm going to sort of tease this a bit because we're about to release what we call the Felix Brand Scorecard. You know, there are so many SaaS scorecards out there, whether it's, you know, there's the 0.91, you have the Bessemer one. I'm sure there's a bunch of others that should show, you know, here are best in class SaaS metrics across everything from, you know, NR to like CAC payback or whatever. Like it's, it's uh, we want to do the same thing and help demystify consumer a bit because I think, you know, part of the there hasn't really been anyone who's who sort of shared this, and I think a lot of consumer founders. We, we do get a lot of questions of you know what what does a good consumer company look like from a, from a metrics perspective. We have sort of the more quantifiable things, which are you know a lot around sort of um, growth efficiency, you know unit economics, you know ROAS, um, LTV to CAC. If it's physical products, we also look at sort of margin profile, your mix between channels. We also have sort of in, more intangible things, which we we sort of call more the brand magic side, which is, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at Instagram, TikTok, and other social channels to see how do people really feel about the brand? You know, is it something where they're really becoming, you know, ideally you want to turn your brand into almost something where people want to, um, people, your customers become your ambassadors, right? Because people are so excited about the product or so excited about the service or the, or the brand that they're telling their, their friends, they're tagging their friends in the comments and saying, hey, you should check this out. And that leads to this sort of beautiful organic flywheel of growth. We have sort of over the years collected a lot of these metrics across different stages of um, of, of companies and, and uh, are really excited to, to soon share that with the world. Amazing. Stay tuned for the Felix Brand Scorecard. Can't wait. Um, and I guess just um, on your point around kind of brand magic, would highly recommend listeners to look into kind of Rex Woodbury's uh, commentary on, on, on brand. I think he does an incredible overview of um, Rex is amazing. Yeah, kind of person power and everything. Cool. So I guess um would love to um take a step back from Phoenix and consumer investing and also look at I guess the current state of diversity in, in Europe. It's a super hot topic at the moment. Everyone's talking about it. Um I think Sifted featured um you know mass exodus of women out of VC, but um, I think to, to to your point around cautiously optimistic, this is my view on the diversity topic in Europe, but would love to also kind of get your thoughts on how do we kind of continue to create a much more inclusive tech ecosystem in Europe? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, it's a, I think it's an you know, important topic for, for everyone. And I, I hope also not, not just for the female listeners, but also you know, the, the men who are you know, looking to support the women in their life, as I know there are many who are. Um, I think, yeah, similar to you, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty cautiously optimistic. Um, I do feel like you know, things have moved in, in definitely in the right direction. If I, if I think about the sort of tech landscape today versus 
you know, when I was starting out in my career in 2008, um, it definitely does feel like less of, uh, you know, just <laughs> only tech pros, but obviously still a lot of work, still a lot more work to be done. And, you know, there's an Atomico report and, and others would, would show that like the, the amount of funding still going to female founders and, and to female GPs is, is still pretty, pretty small, uh, pretty minuscule in, in, the, in the scheme of things. I mean, I, you know, I say this as, as, as a working mom with a four-year-old little boy. Um, it is tough to get that balance right. I think, you know, I think earlier on in my career, I was sort of was more of a mentality of like, you know, if we, if, if something, if you just work hard and hustle that like, you know, you, opportunities will come and, and you can sort of, um, you can make it. I think, you know, when you get to more sort of the post-family stage, you do realize that like regulation um, has a lot to play, has a big role to play in that as well. I mean, if I look at sort of what some of my my Nordic peers um, experience, you know, there there's a reason why the diversity stats are so much better in in, in Sweden, and and that's you know a lot of it's it's cultural and also you know regulatory driven, right? Having having both um, women and and men take take maternity and paternity leave levels of playing field because suddenly you're not you're the odd one out but actually you know both parties are, are really um, being being uh, you know playing an important role um, and also getting time off and um, and also that may, obviously makes them, the men much more um, empathetic to to what what uh, women might be going through there's also you know great paid childcare services there um, and and culturally I think you know there is just the, the understanding that you sort of you need to integrate both work and life um, so I think you know there there is like the, the model you know of, of the Nordics um, and uh, is is one that I'm I'm uh, I'm a big fan of, and I think you know could be I, I wish could be replicated in more countries. I obviously understand like it's it's you know they're they also have you know they're they're smaller, maybe it's easier to to have that type of um regulatory um, requirements, but uh, I think that that does play a big role. And then otherwise, I think it is you know hopefully a virtual cycle of, of more you know the more female founders and female execs there are that mentor the next generation, the more you know f- senior the female partners there are that mentor the next generation that like over time we will see more and more of that shift but it has to go sort of hand in hand with with the right um encouragement from from different sectors as well yeah i agree um i think we're definitely at the beginning of the potential kind of flywheel effect of of everything in the industry so stay tuned i guess so susan on to the final question <laughs> um this is something that we kind of discuss separately uh, i'm personally very very excited about kind of hearing more of your thoughts on it so I guess, what advice would you give your younger self if you reflect back in your career so far? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, I think, you know, the one thing that I, I would probably, I mean, there, there's many things because I've done many, many, many mistakes, landed in a good spot um, overall. But uh, I think, you know, one thing is is probably around being comfortable with with being fully authentic and, and vulnerable, um, actually. I think that was something I struggled a lot in my early part of my career. I I actually remember, uh, you know, when I was first starting out in consulting at Bain that I got this feedback. I mean, I was a young woman. I probably looked much younger even then. I was, I've always been quite short. So I, I probably looked like I was maybe a teenager. And I, I got this, you know, I got a lot of feedback from partners at the time, you know, to like that I had to dress a certain way and that like they were like, you need to start projecting more gravitas. And I was like, how do I do that? And, you know, it was like, I was like, well, do I need to start lowering my voice? Like it's, you know, it was very like, <laughs> hopefully, you know, young women these days aren't getting the same feedback. So, you know, hopefully we, we have moved on that. Um, but I, I felt for a long time that I had to, yeah, I had to sort of, I uh, had had a certain work persona that I had to fit into. And that, that you know, a lot of that persona was, was looking at, um, older, more successful men and try to fit myself into that mold, which obviously was a little bit, you know, uh, square peg, round hole. I was never going to quite work the same way. 
<laughs> and um, and I think you know I've I've learned over the years to that um, actually if you're if you're truly authentic and bring your whole self and especially you know in, in, in you know the roles we're in as in investors where it's um, when you're connecting at a human level um, it you just really you get to much more real authentic and deeper relationships by by being fully yourself and not trying to pretend to be someone else and also being okay okay with with vulnerability so you know sometimes. You know, founders ask me certain things. I don't have the answers. You know, I, I will try to help them, but I don't have the answers. I've also made mistakes and I've screwed up and, and that's okay. Um, you know, I think the transparency and, and, uh, and learning to, and to, you know, not, not have to put this, you know, our industry is so much about, a lot of it's about like self, you know, market. I mean, there was a lot of marketing on, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on you know, X, whatever that like, you know, where everyone's killing it. We're all doing amazingly. Um, you know, every investment is going to be unicorn. That, that's not, that's, you know, just not how reality is. And so I think, you know, I wish for, for everyone to, to be more comfortable with, with sort of being really sort of uh, authentic and vulnerable. What a way to end the podcast, authenticity, vulnerability, and empathy. <laughs> I think that's what well, we're in the middle of podcast. Yeah, we're all in this together. And, uh, and you know, hopefully if we all work together, we can create a bigger pie. Amazing. Susan. Actually, I'm going to show, I'm going to show this, uh, sorry, this is very cheesy, but this um, poster behind me, work hard and be nice to people is uh, what we try to do. I love that. Susan, thank you so much for joining us on At The Cap Table podcast. Uh, it's been a really, really, really interesting conversation and super fun. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really, really appreciate it uh, being here. And, and sorry, I, I've been a bit rambly. <laughs> <laughs> it's been great. Thank you for listening to this special episode on the European VC. If you love our show, join our community by subscribing at eu.vc. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Tactic is the leading forecasting and scenario planning software for venture capital funds. Tactic combines portfolio construction, portfolio management, forecasting, and reporting into a unified platform. Investors are empowered with data-driven insights on fund strategy, reserve allocation, exit planning, and fund performance. Tactic was built using quantitative techniques researched from hundreds of data-driven fund managers and is trusted by over 250 funds globally today. Tactic is a proud sponsor of the first season of the At The Cap Table podcast series. If you'd like to learn more, please check out tactic.io. T-A-C-T-Y-C dot I-O. T-A-C-T-Y-C dot I-O.